haven't picked up on the fact that John cares a lot about love in this letter, then you need to know that he does care an awful lot about love. So this morning, as we continue in the passage, you need to know that love is not some dimension of the Christian life that only really serious Christians think about. For instance, it would be unusual for a follower of Jesus to memorize the whole New Testament or even to be able to read 200 books in one year. But it should not be uncommon. Let me, let me see that mic. I'll use that one. to love one another. And that is what this epistle is trying to emphasize, the importance of loving one another. So John, as we study this passage today, it sounds very repetitive to what we have been reading throughout this epistle. And that's intentional. Because if we don't understand the value and the significance of what it means for Christians to love, then we are going to distort the beauty of the gospel. So as we work our way through this text today, we'll learn a few things. Number one, the role of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the contrast between love and fear. And number three, that the love of God produces love of brother. So number one, the role of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the contrast between love and fear. And then number three, that the love of God produces love of brother. So number one, the role of the Holy Spirit. How can we know that we abide in him and he in us? This is what John is talking about at the beginning of the passage today. Most, if not all Christians in the room today, at some point in their walk with Christ, have gone through a season of doubting whether or not they're truly saved. In fact, my own story of conversion is this. I walked the aisle, I filled out a card at the age of eight, and then I spent the next six years seriously doubting whether or not I was truly converted to faith in Christ. And then at the age of 14, I truly repented of my sin, placed my faith in Christ, and was baptized. So this is a story that's common for quite a lot of people. But what this passage is teaching us is that one of the ways that we actually know that we are in Christ is through the assurance that comes through His Spirit that lives in us. So the Holy Spirit's role is numerous in our lives. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit is the one responsible for regenerating our hearts, moving us from darkness to light, changing our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, as Jeremiah said. But in addition to the work of regeneration, the Holy Spirit also assists us in a number of other ways. He assists us in our battle with sin. He equips us for spiritual warfare. He fills us with joy in the midst of trials. He intercedes for us in prayer. He supplies gifts to each and every believer, and he serves as our guarantee that we are, in fact, in Christ. And, as this passage points out, he brings assurance to God's children 
that yes, in fact, you have turned from darkness to light. Romans 8 illustrates this very clearly in chapter uh, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Paul says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit works in us through assuring us of our salvation. John tells us in this passage that the Holy Spirit was given to us. This is really important because prior to faith in Christ, no one was seeking out the Spirit. No one was requesting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to us as a gift from God. We don't have time to read it this morning, but in John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15, you can go and read later about Jesus' teaching on the importance of the Holy Spirit and how Jesus says that when I leave, another is coming to be your helper, he says in that passage. So if you are here today doubting your own salvation or wondering if the decision that you made to follow Christ many years ago was sincere, then what you should do is look to the activity of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Answer these questions. Is the Spirit assisting you in resisting sin? Do you feel conviction over your sin? Are you able to have joy in the midst of your trials? Do you feel equipped during periods of spiritual warfare? Do you sense and know that God has given you a gift that is to be used in the body of Christ? We are not saved, let's be very clear here, we are not saved by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are saved by the finished work of Christ in his death on the cross. But the Spirit does give those that who, who are truly saved assurance that our response to the gospel in repentance and faith was in fact legitimate. So John is reminding the true Christians that he's writing to in this passage in verse 14 that he and the other apostles had seen Jesus. And that they were convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. This takes us all the way back to chapter 1. When John is emphasizing from the very beginning that which he had seen and heard. That had been passed down from one generation to the next. John wants these readers to know that they can trust John and the other apostles. Because they've seen Jesus with their own eyes. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance that as we read God's word, that the testimony of the apostles was in fact true and accurate. Therefore, it would follow that if the testimony of John and the apostles was true, then Jesus must be the divine Son of God. And throughout our study of this epistle, we have learned that the false teachers that John is refuting throughout this letter they were claiming that Jesus was not the Son of God. So one of the ways the Spirit works in us is when we open up God's Word and we read it, He gives us confidence, He gives us assurance to trust the gospel message 
that was passed down from John and the other disciples and from generation to generation and to generation and eventually to us. The Holy Spirit does his work as we read the word of God to give us confidence and assurance that what we're reading is in fact true. Think about that for a moment. When you interact or you sit down with lost people and you try to help them understand the scriptures, it should not be surprising at all that they are not convinced by the truths of scripture because they don't have the spirit in them yet. The reason that we are fully convinced that the word of God is true is because the spirit resides in us and is giving us confirmation that what we read is in fact true. That's why when we dialogue and interact with lost people, we should be praying that the Holy Spirit will regenerate their heart. Because they will not, in their natural state, come to believe the words of Scripture on their own. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. The Spirit must move in a person's heart for them to understand what is happening. So, John makes it very clear in this passage today that God abides in those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And those that believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they also abide in God, the text says. So it's going both ways. God abides in them, they abide in God. As you've noticed, John is incredibly black and white in this epistle. But the application for us is this. Jesus is not simply a good teacher. He's not simply a miracle worker. He's not simply a friend of sinners. He was God in the flesh. So to only acknowledge that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he was a friend of sinners, that he was a wise teacher, that's all great information to know about Jesus, but it can still and will lead people to an eternal hell. People must know that Jesus was the Son of God who came to save sinners from their sins by dying in their place and taking on the punishment that they deserve for their sin. Therefore, the only proper response to the gospel is to repent and place our faith in Christ alone for salvation. God does not abide in the heart of an individual who refuses to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It is not up for debate. It is a non-negotiable truth of Scripture that Jesus came as God in the flesh. So if you are here today and you are not in Christ, we are so glad that you're here. But we want you to know that simply acknowledging Jesus' existence does not make you a Christian. You must believe that Jesus came to die for your sin in your place as the Son of God. Repent of your sin and stake your life on the forgiveness only found through Christ's atoning death on the cross. And in the resurrection of Jesus, as we celebrated just a few weeks ago, we know that sin has been defeated and that new life is only possible through Christ. So the question is, how can one know and believe of the love of God that he has for them? You look no further 
then the crucifixion and the resurrection for proof of this. This is why clearly every week we clearly want to articulate what the gospel teaches. If you have your bulletin, look to the very back page of your bulletin. We have started including this, and I'm going to straight up read it to you as you look at it yourself. The gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ. And that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule. And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son, Jesus, to live for his people's sake, the perfect, obedient life God requires, and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. On the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and now reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in him for salvation. You should take that home, cut it out, put it on your refrigerator. Cut it out, put it on your dash of your car. Cut it out, fold it up, put it in your wallet. The gospel is not something that we only respond to at one time. We think about it, we meditate on the goodness and the graciousness and the mercy of God day in and day out. You should memorize that definition. Not because it gets you into heaven, but because you should be reminded daily the goodness found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, what 1 John is trying to teach his audience is this is what the gospel is and this is what it isn't. This is really what this whole letter is about. Making sure that the true Christians understand what constitutes being a Christian, faith in Christ, and what does not constitute being a Christian, anything else. The gospel is the good news. The gospel message is how I am convinced and how you are convinced that God could love a sinner like me. Number two, we also see in this passage, there's a contrast going on between love and fear. So not only do we learn of the role of the Holy Spirit, we learn of this contrast between love and fear. The perfection or the completeness of love, which is referenced in verses 17 and 18. These are the third and fourth times in this epistle that John talks about the perfection of love. The first time is all the way back in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, whoever keeps his word in hand truly the love of God is perfected. So in that verse, the perfected love of God is represented in obedience to God. The second time we read about it is in 4.12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So in that verse, the perfected love of God is expressed in the love that Christians have for one another. In verse 17 here, the context of perfect love is to be understood in removing fear 
on the day of judgment. Perfect love is expressed in the confidence Christians have regarding this day of judgment that John is talking about. So the love of God for me expressed in the sending of Jesus to die for my sin is what gives me confidence when Jesus returns on that day of judgment. Jesus will return in judgment. Throughout this epistle and throughout John's gospel, when the act of divine judgment is mentioned, Jesus is the one who's responsible for it. He is the agent of God's judgment. John 5, 22. It says this, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Then a few verses later, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Sometimes we think that God the Father is the judge and Jesus the Son is the loving, all-gracious, all-merciful person of the Trinity. But yet when we read the New Testament, we see over and over again that Jesus is actually the agent of God's judgment. It is Jesus who will come in judgment. So when we share the gospel with lost people, we must not exclude that judgment is coming. It's not a popular or a fun message to deliver, but without the judgment of Christ, there's really no sense of urgency for lost people to turn from their sin and come to faith in Christ. Jesus only becomes, without his judgment, he only becomes like any other religious figure who maybe if I follow him, he'll bring me success and I'll be a better human being. Jesus is coming in judgment, John tells us. Lost people need to know this. Fortunately, for those in Christ, the judgment and punishment for sin has been poured out on Jesus in his death on the cross. But for those not in Christ, the judgment for sin will be poured out on individuals through eternal death and damnation apart from Christ in hell. This is the message of Jesus in the New Testament. We see the phrase, as he is, so also are we in this world, the text says. Here's what this means. In the same way that Christ was loving toward his disciples when he was in the world, we should be loving one another as we are in the world as well. So when Christians act this way toward one another, it actually shows that they live in God and they have no need to fear the day of judgment. Christians should approach the day of judgment with confidence and allow God's perfect love in us to give us that confidence. That's what John is teaching here. And then in verse 18, we're told perfect love casts out fear. And then John goes on to say, thankfully, and define for us what he means by fear. For fear, he says, has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what type of punishment is John referring to? 
He's referring to punishment that all of those who are not in Christ will receive as a result of sin. Did you know the word that John uses here for punishment is used only one other time in the New Testament? It's used in Matthew chapter 25 by Jesus himself. This is how Jesus uses that word in verse 46. He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What do we know about God? We know that he is just. We know that he is holy. We know that he is perfect. And because he is all of those attributes, he must execute a sentence against unholiness and unrighteousness in order to be true to his nature. And the beauty of the gospel is that the justice of God is demonstrated in the punishment for sin that Jesus received on the cross. So, if you're in Christ this morning, remember, it is not that God did not execute justice for your sin. Please do not think that if you are in Christ, somehow God passed over your sin. The execution, the judgment for your sin was poured out on Jesus. No one avoids judgment. Even Christians Jesus stepped up and took on the judgment and the punishment and the penalty for our sin in our place. So that's why we celebrate the goodness of the gospel. That's why we celebrate the love of God. Because even though all Christians deserve death and condemnation, Paul tells us in Romans 8.1, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ today, rejoice. Let's not cheapen God's grace by thinking that our sin doesn't matter or that it's not a big deal. Our sin does matter, and by God's grace, through the power of His Spirit, we should strive for holiness in all that we do. And if you're here today and this talk of the judgment of God makes you feel incredibly uncomfortable, let me urge you to talk with someone, to allow one of our pastors or one of our faithful church members to sit down and walk you through that definition of the gospel and what it means to turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ alone. Because perfect love, John says, casts out fear. I do not stand here today as one who is scared of the judgment of Jesus because I know that it was poured out on the cross for me. And I live in confidence that if Jesus comes even before this sermon is over, I am secure. Not because of anything that I accomplished, but because of what Christ accomplished in my place. And then number three, we see as John closes out this chapter, the love of God produces within us the love that we have for our brothers and sisters. Look in verse 19, because the order with which John teaches about love here is really important. We love, John says, because he first loved us. Christians, 
We only know how to love the way God wants us to love because God himself first showed us and modeled that and demonstrated it for us. Jesus teaches this to his followers in John 15. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The only reason I would even remotely think to lay down my life for you is because Jesus set that example for me. I would not do that in my flesh. I am far too consumed with my own life and my own family to ever think about extending love towards others unless the Holy Spirit has changed my heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So what John is teaching his followers here, a claim to love God divorced from a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is a lie. Not only would this be true in our local church, but it would be true for all Christians around the world. If we are known for our hate rather than our love, we are providing a distorted and, might I add, disgusting view of Christianity. We are known by our love for one another. Being loving does not mean that you have to agree with everyone, but it does mean that even if you do disagree, you always treat people with kindness and compassion and gentleness. Know what you believe. Have strong biblical convictions. Don't shy away from them, but do so always with a spirit of gentleness and love. I know what you're thinking right now. Well, Jesus flipped the tables of the money changers in the temple. You're not Jesus, and I'm not either. So please do not manipulate that verse to mean that you can just flip out whenever you want because there's one occasion of Jesus, who, by the way, is God in the flesh, using his anger in a righteous way. If I have to think through whether or not the majority of the time my anger comes from righteousness or unrighteousness, this is just me, I'm going to lean towards my, most of my anger being from an unrighteous perspective. I don't think that highly of myself to think that my anger is often the way that Jesus used his anger in the New Testament because he's God and I'm not. You'll notice John circles back around to the invisibility of God in this passage, which we talked about just last week. And he uses it this time to argue his point that if a Christian cannot love his brother or sister in Christ that he can see, then there's no way that he's loving God whom he cannot see. What's John mean here? He's saying that Christians demonstrate that we love God not by loving his word and loving his church only, although those are incredibly important, but we demonstrate that we love God through the way that we love one another. So one commentator said this. It's very helpful. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater that John uses here. If people cannot carry out the lesser requirement to love their fellow believers whom they have seen, they cannot carry out the greater requirement to love God whom they have not seen. Just think about this from a common sense perspective. If you see someone 
who claims to be a follower of Jesus, angry all the time, never encouraging, never lifting up, always spewing hatred and negativity, even if you don't know them, you're going to probably assume in your mind and heart that there is no way this person is a Christian. It doesn't mean that they're not. But the perception is that if brothers and sisters cannot love one another, there is no possible way that that brother or sister could love God. That's the principle that John is teaching here. It doesn't mean that they don't love God because we all have moments when we fall short. We all have moments where we sin and where we're not proud of the way we behave. But if it's a consistent pattern of behavior, it could be, as John writes in this passage, that the reason they don't love their brothers and sisters in Christ is because they're not in Christ, because they don't know God. That's what John is saying. And he concludes this passage by reminding his readers that love is not just some optional add-on for really serious Christians. No, it's, it's foundational to who we are. Loving God means you love your brothers and sisters. In the context of this letter, so many of the true Christians were being confused by the false teachers who were attempting to pull them away from an orthodox understanding of who Jesus was as God in the flesh, and they were trying to pull them away, leading them to believe that if you're truly saved, you'll never sin. And in the context of this letter, this was creating an us versus them mentality, which is why John is writing. He is telling these Christians, look, these false teachers that are trying to pull you away from the true church, they prove that they don't love you because they don't love God. And the reason they don't love God is demonstrated in the behavior that they are exhibiting towards you. John is reminding all Christians today and in his day that your love for one another demonstrates your love for God. John is saying that these false teachers might be pushing for you to become more enlightened according to their standards, but ultimately they prove based on their behavior towards you that they do not love God. Because God is love. And his children reflect that love, not only to one another, but to even those who we interact with on a daily basis who do not know Christ. So don't overread into this text that John is solely talking about the way believers love one another. He is, but the application extends, like we said last week, to those outside the church as well. So, this is a very simple passage with a very simple challenge. Church, it is our job to love one another. That's our job. Let's not avoid the difficult conversation that we might need to have with a brother or sister in Christ. Let's be transparent and open with one another, viewing each other with the best of intentions rather than the worst. Because when we do that, we prove that we love God. Because our love for one another flows out of our love for God. So the challenge for all Christians is to work diligently to love one another. And the challenge 
for people in this room that do not know Christ is to experience and come to know the love that God has for you through understanding the beauty of the gospel message that Jesus died for you in your place for your sin and that any that will turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ can understand the beauty of gospel love that cannot be found anywhere else that this world has to offer. Let's pray. God, as we come to this time of response, help us to examine our own hearts, to evaluate, actually think through, am I loving my brothers and sisters in Christ the way that you teach us here in this passage? None of us have arrived. We can always grow in our sanctification. And if there are any in this room today that are fearful of the coming judgment as John prays about here, help them to know that they don't have to be fearful. That they can have confidence when Jesus returns by turning from their sin and placing their faith in Christ alone. Because as you say in this passage today, perfect love casts out fear. So God, for any in this room today that are fearful, may they come to know you and experience perfect love. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.